Welcome to Coded in Canada, a show about technology entrepreneurs, innovators, and leaders in Victoria, BC. I'm your host, Sean Crabtree. On this episode, we'll hear about how tech has become Victoria's number one industry for four years running, generating over $4 billion a year, and home to over 900 tech companies. We'll be speaking with Dan Gunn, director of Viatech, a one-stop hub that connects people, knowledge, and resources to grow and promote technology in Victoria. We'll hear why he found his way out to Victoria and why he calls it a magnetic city. Enjoy. Um, and so uh, I'd done a few things uh, that had led me into having a, a small tech support company in, in Ontario. Mm-hmm. And I was doing that, but I had free time. I wasn't like it was a service company, so I sold my time. And if it wasn't all sold, then, then I had free time. And um, I hadn't taken a vacation in a long time. I'd been, I worked at Via Rail for a bit before I started this company, and I worked at the Future Shop for a while. Um, I sold a lot of extended warranty, and I'm sorry for that. Uh, the, but uh, that's another whole podcast. Uh, but uh, so I took this vacation, and I, I set out for the Grand Canyon. I had a, like a Jeep YJ, mm-hmm. and I was with, took a guitar, a mountain bike, and a Jeep, and started driving to the Grand Canyon. And uh, along the way, I, like this is pre Google Maps, this is pre smartphone. Right. I had like a trip tick from CAA, you know, where they would like show you where everything is on the map, and I was so I was following that, and I was like, I'm gonna stop by New Orleans first. Not really, again, you know, I had an atlas. It didn't look that far from the Grand Canyon. Right. And, uh, and so I headed there, and I had no idea. It's February, and then I was arriving during Mardi Gras, which is obviously a big celebration. So I went there. I was only there like four days, and I, I ran out of money, and I ran out of energy, and I drove straight home, 22 hours straight drive home from, from Mardi Gras. And there are many great stories from that four days. But um, I came home, and I was exhausted. Like, I had enough money to buy McChickens and gas, and that's it. And I got through my front door and I fell asleep inside the front door in Ontario. And I didn't wake up until the snowplow went by. And I, I don't, for whatever delirious reason, I thought, I wonder who decides where the snowplows go by and, and how that gets scheduled. And then I just started looking into city business. Um, and it just became kind of a, a, a hobby where I was just, I was, you know, staying up on all the current events and attending a few meetings and looking into it. And uh, that July, not even, it might have been earlier, uh, but June, July, I filled out the paperwork. I, and unlike most people who do a political campaign where they have a team, I just did it alone. And I didn't even have like, most people have like a bunch of people lined up to endorse them. I just walked from neighbor to neighbor in my neighborhood because you have to have 10 signatures from people saying you're, you're, they, they support you as a candidate. And I just, my first 10 neighbors signed it. Wow. Then I submitted that and I didn't, I, my campaign cost $350 total. Um, <laughs> I took one donation for $100 and I didn't even feel good about that. It was uh, uh, a guy who lived around the corner, but he was pretty adamant. And I ran for election, and um, I, got, I think I must have thought I was going to win. But looking back, it's an, it was an absurd concept. I was, you know, I was less than half the age of everybody else on the council. Um, but I was, uh, I had energy, and uh, and I had some broad appeal ideas around environment and you know financial stewardship. And I knocked on every door, like every single door. I started in uh, July, and by by November, when the election happened, I talked to everybody. Um, and one of the things that I think worked really well for me was one, that people were impressed with the diligence that that took. And two, um, I managed to do that before the election cycle started. And most, a lot of the people who lived where I lived on the lake were um, seasonal 
uh, people. Uh -huh. So they come, uh, they come on the weekends, they come to the summer, and then they come for Thanksgiving weekend, and that's usually the first advanced poll. Uh -huh. And I did very well in the first advanced poll. I didn't know that until later. And so that's why I ended up there. Honestly, I, 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 I probably didn't fully appreciate what I was trying to get myself into or yeah. how, how, how difficult it should be. Um, but just through really hard work, um, it, it worked out. And then, uh, and that was what an education, you know, three years of, you know, dealing with hundreds of millions of dollars in budgets and, you know, learning about capital expenses and liabilities and, mm -hmm. you know, all the strategic planning and the reserves and the taxation and mill rate, like just, it was a crash course. It was, you know, better than going to university for sure. And, right. uh, and then I went back to university while I was doing that. Right. I like how you say you're half the age. Well, that's now. Mm -hmm. You're half the age of what you are now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's exactly true. So what do you think fueled you uh, going door to door? Was there anything in particular that made you? I don't want this to be an, you know, self-aggrandizing or anything. Um, my family worked, uh, worked very hard, and they were entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. um, so on my father's side, there was an organization called Gun Plumbing. That was a family business that lasted for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And uh, when you're around that side of the family, if you didn't have a job, they were going to get you one. And it wasn't going to be pleasant. Right? You're going to dig ditches. Um, and on my mother's side, they were very entrepreneurial. They would, um, you know, from, from flea markets to kiosks and malls and other things, they were ordering products from around the world and from wholesalers and selling them. And so I'd always seen people just sort of do stuff on their own. And so I thought that's just how you do things. And so if you want to win an election, what do you do? Well, you got to meet everybody and you got to convince everybody. And so um, it was pretty easy for me to, uh, to go around and convince everybody, or not easy, but it was pretty easy to know that what I should do is knock on every door and talk right. to everybody. And so I think that was the difference, was I started early, um, and I was, I was well prepared. I, 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 you know, I, all I had was a, of my own business um, that I was running, and so everything else was just focused on understanding city business and, mm -hmm. and where that, and so, yeah. Right. Um, fast forward a couple of years, uh, you came out to the coast with a girl that didn't work out. Yes. You went to Royal Roads, you got your Bachelor of Commerce, and then eventually met a girl. Yeah. Um, why, uh, what did you like about Royal Roads? Was hmm. there anything there that uh, has stuck with you through the years? It's been nearly 20 years. Sure. So yeah, I came out um, uh, with my girlfriend at the time. She was getting into UVic Law. And I fell in love with Victoria. I got off the plane and I was like, it was, I think it was February. It was probably February reading break and I was like, this is insane. I can't right. believe this is an option. What am I doing? Where's the snow? Yeah, so how do I get there? Um, and I, I remember in 1995, I was on an airplane and I saw an article in McLean's about Royal Roads. I had a picture of the castle covered in ivory. It looked very, you know, regal. And, uh, and, and, uh, and, you know, had that heritage vibe and everything. I, for some reason that stuck with me. And so this would have been 99, I think. Uh, 98 probably mm -hmm. and uh, so I went to find it and I went out to Royal Roads and I just walked around and I found the brochure on the BCom and um, it was uh, you did your two if you had an, if you had other undergrad studies you did two years at once so mm -hmm. in 12 months you did the two years of a program mm -hmm. I was already into my fourth year at Trent University where I'd switched majors four times mm -hmm. and and it was obvious to me um, because I was a city uh, counselor still and because I was um, also running a publishing company that I'd started while I was there, and because I'm not a very diligent student, that I was never going to finish university the way I was going. And so the idea of getting away from, from all of that stuff and doing something in a concentrated way really appealed to me, and that worked really well. I treated it like a job. Right. I showed up at campus at 8.30 in the morning, and I left at 6 p.m. at night, and my work was done before I left, and so I was never never felt burdened by it. And I met some amazingly great people, both professors and, and, and fellow students. Uh -huh. There was a good, strong sense of um, uh, camaraderie, esprit de corps, and, and community. 
Um, and there was lots of opportunity and I was excited to be in, in, in BC. And so, um, it worked really well for me. And, uh, and it was my international business professor at Royal Roads right. that was the CEO of iTech that hired me when I graduated. So I was one of those lucky people who graduated and two weeks later started a job and I've been at that job now ever since. Right. That's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so then moving over to Biotech, uh, it has been around for nearly 30 years and you joined as the director of communications at that time. 2000 uh, what was that like uh, in the in the first five years that you're you're here hmm so um, Viatech just to make sure it's clear Viatech was nine years old when I started uh -huh. so I didn't start right at the very beginning and uh -huh. so that had been run um, by uh, Bob Skeen had been the CEO of the organization then and um, at the, I'd say in the early days based on what I can I know from not being there but looking mm -hmm. back and what I've heard mm -hmm. um, uh, Bob was very well connected he had run BC systems and so he was very well connected with the government and a large portion of it, and this is the way it is for a small, early stage, uh, not-for-profit, the majority of the funding came from government. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, in some ways, you become a bit of an NGO where you know, perhaps you're doing the work that the government sees as a priority. Um, and, uh, and that worked very well. And Bob left in 19, or yeah, he left in 2000, June of 2000. And I started November of 2000. Um, shortly after that, I think it was May of 2001, the Liberals were elected with Gordon Campbell as a premier. Mm -hmm. And he had said there'll be no business subsidy. Um, and, and what I don't think a lot of people had seen was that that meant that there was a lot of funding for programs that had existed, like the Regional High Tech Development Fund right. and others that were going to go away. Uh -huh. And so that started to go away. And so from 2000 to 2004, um, I was I was having a great time. We were creating things like the Vitech Job Board, and we were creating the Vitech Awards, and what Island Tech, which later became uh, Discover Tectoria. Um, so a lot of things were going well uh, in my portfolio, um, but the overall revenue of the organization was declining, mm -hmm. and uh, so that was a tough time. And um, we went through a couple of leaders uh, during that time, and then in 2000 and, and early 2005, I put my hat in the ring for the CEO job. Mm -hmm. And um, and at first, you know, uh, I was 33 at that time, mm -hmm. and at first, um, I wasn't the ideal candidate that the board was looking for. Mm -hmm. But due to other circumstances, eventually they came back and said, "Well, what would that be like?" And, mm -hmm. and and you know, there's a lot of really good stories about some people in the community that sort of rallied to my support and and, and suggested that I would be good for the job. Mm -hmm. um, but that that period was tough because the the funding was uncertain and the and the impact was diminishing, um, but it also led to a, sort of a resurrection of sorts. And so, in two thousand and five, you know, uh, the reason uh, Viatech was was making as many moves as it was uh, was that it was running out of cash fast, and there wasn't. It was going to be like it was kind of do we stay open or not? Right. That's a great time to get the job because there's an only you know, nowhere to go but up, right? right. So I make jokes about how the battleship had sunk, and, and so they're like, how do you turn it around? And I said, you open a reef, right? Like, you, you, or you, you know, a submarine museum. Um, and so, I mean, we couldn't just be what we were. We couldn't, um, we couldn't just look for the same programming that we had had before, the same funding we had had before. And so um, we came up with some certain values that were really important. One, that we were a community, not a group. And community is where people share a great common denominator, and a group is where people join for selfish reasons with demands. And, and being a community means, look, we're gonna work together on this. Um, another key one was uh, quality. We had our team had been getting smaller and smaller, and so we weren't able to do things as well. Mm -hmm. um, and then contact, which meant membership contact. And so, Vitech mm -hmm. has had memberships paid for by companies since the beginning, but it used to be a much smaller portion of our revenue. Mm -hmm. And so, 
the, the really the, the, the short story is we decided we we're going to be an industry association, which means we're going to rely on the, um, the guidance of our membership to determine what we focus on and where we go, which seems very obvious. Right. Um, the, the, the thing about that is, is it's much harder to fund an organization doing it that way. And that's why people end up chasing government funding because it's large buckets of money. It's one person saying yes instead of 300 right. or now in our case 550. Right. Um, but we became an industry association and we really focused on serving the membership and whatever they told us they wanted. Um, and then, but, but specifically looking for great common denominators. So like if a member comes to you and says, I have this one problem, but none of the other members share it, you really can't do anything about it. But if 80 members come forward and say, if something like this was to happen in this regard, it would be very beneficial to my organization, then that's obviously where you can't concentrate your resources. And so that was the 2005 bounce off the bottom. But you know, we went from the year before I took over, we lost $135,000. The year after, we made $135,000. And so it was a massive turnaround for, for our organization. And we set out then to build a war chest of more than $500,000 so that if government funding ever disappeared again, we had we had patient uh, opportunity to make the next best best move for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so that was, you know, 2005 to 2009 that was kind of the, the primary focus of the organization. And has government funding ever been lost? Uh, or well, have you always been is the word subsidized or supported? So, so here's how we treat it now. So either, there, it could be a subsidy or it could be a, prog- a program. And so um, the more the funding goes towards your core operations, the more that's subsidization or core funding. And the more it goes to a program, the more specific it is. And if that program isn't working and the funding goes away, you just stop doing that program. Mm. We try and maintain the latter. Um, it's hard because a program like our venture acceleration program requires input from all members of our team. It requires resources from all components. And so, um, so it's hard to keep that completely separate, which is our preference. Um, but we have in our mind that when the funding, if the funding goes away for a project, well, that project's over. Um, and, the, and the real key in that is, one, making sure you have stable enough operations and you've kept things separate enough that it, the amputation doesn't, doesn't cause a fatal, uh, a fatal blow. Um, and managing the expectations of the community that, you know, yes, we know you love that, mm-hmm. but it was paid for by somebody else and they're not paying for it anymore, so it doesn't exist anymore, right? And so that's the, that's the balancing mm-hmm. act. And I mean, managing expectations is the, the biggest job we have. For sure. Uh, just get back a little bit and explain to me, if you would, uh, so what does the government actually um, support? Is it the members and residents, or pardon me, the executives and, executives residents? and residents? Is that the program that they support? So that gr- the government is a broad, so let's break this down. There's a provincial and federal and, and municipal, um, and we get, uh-huh. we get small amounts from the, uh, some of the, one of the municipalities, mm-hmm. and that goes to general operations. But um, at the, the big program we run right now is our accelerator program, the Venture Acceleration Program and RevUp, um, which includes investor summits. And that's split between the provincial and the federal government. So mm-hmm. the provincially, the BC Innovation Council, which has recently been renamed as Innovate BC, has been half of a partner for that, and the other half has been uh, NRC with a program called CAPE, the Canadian Accelerator and Incubator Program. And that's running across the country. So there's, I don't know how many CAPE partners there are in the country. I think there's there's uh, quite a few. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like a $100 million budget uh, mm-hmm. overall that they put into it. Um, and so that's what, how that's funded. And, and in the Accelerator Program, they're funding executives and residents and then training programs um, and some of the, uh, the uh, investor-driven <coughs> events that we do as well. I see, I see. So it sounds like your revenue sources come from about four or five different places, uh, including uh, member, of course, uh, revenues and yeah, we almost run it. Uh, we almost run it as two separate entities. So we have the eat what we kill, 
and then programming. And so um, on the on the like core operations, we have memberships, which are uh, we just uh, for the first time had over three hundred thousand dollars in membership sales, which is uh, which is a big win for us. Um, and then we have events and sponsorships related to events, which is another depends on the year, but up to three hundred thousand dollars or more. Mm. The job board on an annual basis now is about one hundred twenty thousand dollars, which is also one of the most um, valued things by our members. I think it's a very good deal because we charge quite a bit less than the market. I value it. Um, and then there's the building and other things, right? So that's well, that's one half. So we're about a two million dollar operation. Depends on the year. One point one point six to two million dollars. So a million dollars is raised by what we can do on our own, and then a million dollars or so is programming. And so mm-hmm. right now that's four hundred thousand dollars from the NRC and four hundred thousand dollars from BCIC, and then plus a little bit more from from other funders on top of that. Mm-hmm. But that's how we see it as like sort of the two the two limbs of the of the organization. Wow. Okay. Well, thank you for explaining that. Okay, let's take a moment here to thank our first sponsor, Rosemary Media, who created our logo. They brought a keen eye to capturing the ethos of our new brand. Not only do they offer graphic design and brand identity, but also marry that up with a passion for photography. Their sessions are focused on feeling natural and aimed at being joyful and filled with laughter, such as their work for The Race, a short film featured this year at Cannes. Our thanks again to Rosemary Media for their support. Please check out their services on photography and graphic design at rosemarymedia.com. Thanks again. Now let's get back to Dan. So getting back to the time in which you uh, stepped in, and of course there was the uh, negative uh, 125 and then the positive 125. In those next five years, I noticed that you had added, or the organization had added, a number of different programs. Which ones did you decide to do first? Sure, actually what was more important is what we decided to stop doing. Um, And so so a big thing in 2005, I still remember I used to have this office at the tech park. That's where we were for seven years. Mm. And uh, we moved there as a way to control expenses and the, and the tech park did us a great favor by giving us a great rate and a lot of room. And uh, I remember writing down everything I could think of that we told people we did and then just putting it on the floor and then picking it up. And I don't remember exactly everything that I kept. Um, I th- the awards would have been on there. Um, the Island Tech, which became uh, Discover Tectoria would have been on there. This, the round tables, pure round tables would have been on there. Um, but it was specifically with the lens of community contact and quality. What do we? What can we do really well, and what's going to matter and provide the most um, uh, benefit to our membership? Um, and then we slowly started building out other programming from there. But we were quite um, conservative in in our intents there because you know we just had funding almost uh, almost deal a fatal blow due to its unpredictability, and so we didn't want to get into that too quickly. Um, so we were we were doing a good job of shoring up our own services and, and, and benefits, and then we started really the the big thing that's led till now. The common thread is we we created something uh, that was funded modestly by NRC that originally we called the Grow Up, but they made us change the name eventually. Um, and the Grow Up was essentially much like the acceleration program. It was uh, a group of people who had experience building and managing successful tech companies, providing input and advice to up and coming entrepreneurs. That At that time, they were volunteers. Um, and so we had a little bit of administration money sort of to manage the program. But that gave us a lot of insight into how much market demand there was out there, what was working very well, um, what was highly valued. And that became the accelerator program later. And so we, I think we started offering that in 09, 
2010. And it was actually building on a program that had started before I was even at Biotech that used to be called the Canadian Community Investment Program, which is another federal thing that funded something similar, advisory mm -hmm. services to get companies investor ready. Mm -hmm. Our focus wasn't so much as about investor ready, although some people that's very much what they want from us. It was about you know market validation and, mm -hmm. and building a team, leadership, vision, strategy, lean business canvas models, things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and so we were building that out on a volunteer basis. And then in 2010, I, along with uh, Dale from the Tech Park and uh, a few other representatives from Victoria and the BC Innovation Council flew to Waterloo and they had a 25,000 square foot accelerator um, facility. And mm -hmm. so we went there and I saw by one o'clock, we, so we were on a tour, they're showing us all this stuff. I met Ian Klugman, who I still consider uh, a, a valuable contact who runs Communitech. He's my, my peer and colleague. Um, and we chatted and by one o'clock, they were off to meet the future, I think, is it David Johnson that was the most recent Lieutenant General? Uh, Lieutenant Governor, I mean. Mm -hmm. um, he, uh, but I, I, I didn't know, he was the President of Waterloo, and I was like, I've seen enough, and went and wrote the proposal for the federal government on how we would open an accelerator in Victoria, uh -huh. which took two years cause, mm -hmm. um, to, wow. to get an answer on, which was unusual, but we were trying to do it in partnership with the university, and there was some wrinkles along the way with the federal government and how that worked out. By 2012, they were made, ready to make a decision, and that was, we want to fund the Vitech program, but we don't want to fund the facility um, at the tech park. And that actually opened an interesting window for us. That, that gave, we, at that time, we had 63 startups that we were working with in some way in the Grow Up, which became the Launchpad. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we said to them, if we open an accelerator, what would you want to see in it? What are the programs you've seen that are the most valuable? And where would you like it to be? And that was the most insightful thing. 75% of them said it has to be downtown. I would, that, that in particular, they wouldn't want to move um, their office to something outside of town. And the other quarter said they would, but it'd be their third choice and that better be a good program for them to do it. Right. And so we started looking for space in town. At that time in 2012, um, there was a lot of sublet opportunities and we managed to sublet um, Douglas and Hillside, um, the second story of the building there, which was 16,000 square feet for, and we, we got it for like $12 a square foot all in, which is remarkable, better than like a third of what the rate should be. And so we opened the program and uh, started having companies set up with us. And that first year, that would have been March of 2012. By November 2012, we were looking for our next space, recognizing that this program was going to work and that one of the reasons it worked was we had such good control of the costs and we better find another space because this is sublet's running out and we certainly aren't going to get it again. We were subletting it from Columbia Fuels that bought, or yeah, Parkland Fuels that had bought Columbia Fuels and they didn't, they had an office in Langford, they didn't, weren't going to have the space later. So we were going to have a big rate bump if we didn't have a new option in place. Sure. And we knew how long real estate could take. And so that's what set us out um, to, to look for more space that we could, um, at that time we thought sublet and then it ended up being buy uh -huh. downtown. And this was it? Yeah, so we bought Fort Tectoria um, January of 2014, we, we had the finished offer. We took possession March 31st of 2014. We started demolition and renovation March 31st in a minute after midnight. <laughs> and five months and nine days later, uh, what would that have been? It was like September 9th or 14th, I yeah. can't remember. We opened, uh, it must have been 9th, we opened um, uh, the building. Uh, and, and that was a few months before our sublet was running out in January of 2014. Uh, like I said, that would have been 2015 at the wow. old building. So the, the timeline worked out great. And the other thing that worked out great for us was with the 2012 sublet and with the 2014 purchase, we were just ahead of the market noticing what was going on in Victoria. Mm -hmm. And so if we were to try and buy what we bought 
um, then now it would cost us three times as much money. We, we wouldn't, wouldn't be an option for us. Right, right, yeah. right, right. I guess I'd like to hear a little bit about, um, of course, since you've, you've been around for 20 years during this extreme growth phase in Victoria, what have you seen? Who, you know, what have been the most successful startups? Uh, what have been sort of some commonalities of some startups in Victoria? Tell me a little bit about maybe, you know, uh, some of the stronger startups you've seen that have weathered. Sure. Well, I, I mean, yeah, it's so 18 years, you don't have to make it 20 yet. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but um, I think that, uh, like we've seen, you, you, there's the ones that have already come and gone, and then there's the ones that are going strong today. And so, mm. um, I, you know, I think the, the most successful company started in Victoria arguably would have been Espriva, pharmaceutical mm. company. Um, and they, they IPO'd, they were eventually purchased by Vifor, and it was huge. Like, very, they, the, the revenues they were bringing in and, and the size of the, 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 um, uh, the impact that they had was, was big. Um, and so, but they were acquired, they did the IPO and then were acquired. And so, you know, we can't count that as a going concern now. But I do know the people behind it are looking at their next, next thing. And so I'm excited to see that. But yeah, we've never seen anything come close to a billion dollars like that. Right. Um, going on today, you know, there's so many things to point at that are exciting and coming up. I think the, one of the darlings of the community for sure would be Checkfront. Um, everybody talks about Checkfront because it's a really well-run business that's got great growing numbers and, and, a, and a great product. Um, and, uh, and then I think, you know, uh, sort of the seemingly the, the, the pick that everybody's looking at next would be something like Lamazoo. Um, they're in the, the, the virtual reality space. They were specifically in sort of uh, education, but now they're finding new applications for their skill set. And so that mm-hmm. seems to be opening some doors. Um, you know, on the, on the gaming side, you know, there's a number uh, of companies that are going there. So it really depends on what somebody's into uh, as far as they want hardware, software, or, or that type of thing is their, their primary interest. The, the, the common threads of the ones that really make it are um, that they're typically uh, engaged overall. They're, they're, they're willing to ask for help and advice. Um, they're open and candid about how things are going so that too often, I, uh, and that's why we do the, the, the regular fuck up nights for people to talk about mistakes is mm-hmm. to show people that it's okay to talk about things not going well. Yeah. And too often people wait too long until, until it's too late to ask for help. Mm-hmm. So the ones that are engaged and willing to get help is really important. So coachability, um, uh, community engagement uh, is important. Um, and, and I think, you know, ambition can't be overlooked uh, and, and, and a global mindset. Mm-hmm. Very few of our companies sell anything here in Victoria. They sell to international markets. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're here because they went to school here. They're here because of a federal research lab. They're here because of our lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of those things are very compelling and hold on to them, which is great. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so those are some of the coincidences. But the most successful companies are the ones that, you know, beyond just working hard, um, are in some way tapped in and engaged uh, to the overall community and they're playing a part in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that, that, that network of support, you know, those are all things that get thrown around too freely by too many things. But I think in Victoria, there is a stronger sense of community than I've seen elsewhere. And the network is real. The willingness to help and support is real. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I, I would always bet more on, on somebody who's doing that than the lone wolf that thinks they've got it all figured out by themselves. I think just a couple more questions, sure. and I don't, I, and I'm, and I'm cognizant of time as well because I know you have a busy day. But I think I'd like to turn it back to the community, and you're talking about the power and the support of the community. I'd like to hear about that food drive and what oh, led sure. to that tattoo. Oh yeah, sure, sure, that's an easy one. So uh, in 2004, 
Um, I got a phone call from Eric Jordan, who at the time was uh, running Pure Edge Solutions, which was later acquired by IBM. Mm -hmm. And um, he now runs um, uh, Codename, uh, which is a gaming company. They, uh, he had run internally, or they had run internally, a challenge between departments to see who could raise the most for the food bank. And then the next year, Eric contacted like 10 other CEOs and challenged them. And then that fall, he contacted me and said, this thing's happening and it's going great. Can you help me out with, uh, you know, some media coverage and, and attention and that kind of stuff? And so I arranged that. And then Eric said, I think Viatech should be running with this. And so that was, uh, the, would have been like Christmas time, 2004. I ended up in the job running Viatech February of 2005. And so we took that on from that point forward, mm -hmm. but worked closely with the, with the same companies. And, and the idea was simple that, uh, uh, the tech, the tech sector at that time wasn't the number, wasn't known as, and wasn't the number one industry in Victoria, but it was a sizable contributor, and we have a role to play in supporting the broader community. Um, and it turns out tech people are often quite competitive, and so if you give them, if you give them some sort of competition, that'll be motivating for them. And so that's been leveraged now, ever since. So I guess I don't even know what we're up to, 15, 16 years that, that that's oh, been wow. running. So I think it's four, 14 years we've been sort of at the helm of it. Right. And, you know, it's been going on for a long time, and. There was one year where we were a little bit behind on donations, and so I said if we raise over a certain amount, which our goal was $100,000 that year, um, I would get a tattoo of the Vitek insignia on my arm. And that year we did 100, I think, it, oh, I don't want to get it wrong, well over 100,000, 100, might have been $130,000 we ended up I doing. Think it was 126. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, so, um, and so I, it's yeah, worth a tattoo. Sure, it is. You know, <laughs> I, I forget the numbers, but yeah. I think it costs, uh, I can't remember, that, like it's, that's thousands of people eating for a month kind of thing. So, that's fantastic. you know, if, if, if I had to get a tattoo every month to feed thousands of people, I, I would definitely say yes. That'd be the, the painted, the painted Dan. Yeah, <laughs> just imagine. And what does that program uh, support? Is it in in Victoria, or is that? Uh, yeah, it supports it supports local um, food security. The primary uh, uh, recipient is the Mustard Seed Food Bank, but they also play a hand in the centralized food security network that's been created here. And now the Vitech Foundation, which was just announced a year ago at the Vitech Awards, um, has raised money, and so uh, we'll be announcing uh, probably by the time this comes out, or this might be the first time anybody hears. Um, the, but there's going to be a donation to the food security network um, from the foundation along with a few other worthy causes and so so yeah that, there's been a long history of supporting that and that's an important part of you know the health and, and security of our community and so yeah that's wonderful wonderful cause I think I'd like to hear a little bit more about your goal that you said the uh, 10 by 2030 yeah. and the orca pod if you could sure. explain that this is pretty exciting for me because it's kind of new. Not that new. It's a couple of years, I guess, that we're a year and a half that we've been we've been talking about it. But um, a few years ago, during our strategic planning session, rather than admittedly, you know, we have a fourteen person board. We have a, we have now five hundred and fifty members. There's a lot of people to keep in the loop, and there's a lot of you know varying interests along the way. And so we've been quite conservative in our strategic planning, really saying we can't tell the sector what it should be or what it should do, but we should be ready to serve it. And the board pushed me for a more ambitious goal and strategic plan. And so the way we got we came to terms on that was we made it, well, let's look 13 years out at the time, at 2030. So I guess it was February of last year. And um, and then that way there's 13 years to implement whatever whatever we need to do to get this goal done. And so 2030 is a nice round number. And at that time we were like, well, what's an easy thing to measure that every, that appeals to everybody? You know, the policymakers like it, the media likes it. It's a it's a motivating number, and that's the overall revenue number. 
So at that time, our last economic impact study had us at $3.15 billion in revenues. Um, confident it's higher than that. We've got another economic impact study coming out soon. Mm. Um, but so uh, by 2030, getting to $10 billion seemed like an ambitious goal. I'm confident in our ability to achieve it, but I'm also, I also believe that it's a 10-20-30 just rolls off the tongue. Um, it's ambitious. It's motivating. And, and so once we set that goal, that's great. We can say the industry could or should be a certain size, but what's that mean? And in what hand can we play in it? And so the board and I talked for quite a while, and the board, you know, agreed that the biggest issue uh, that's keeping us from, you know, faster growth is around senior skilled talent. And the reason is we don't have enough big companies to attract good senior skilled talent. And so this concept of uh, Jacques Finlayson from the BC Business Council talks about anchor tenants. Um, we call it, uh, we call them the whales, right? And so, uh, and we define whales as something that was locally started, not something that we're not, we're not talking about attracting Amazon HQ or anything like that. We're talking about building companies here. Um, and uh, something, you know, the ideal whale would be a billion dollars in revenues with a thousand staff. Um, four $250 million companies with 250 staff would work too. Mm-hmm. And 10 $100 million companies with 100 staff would, would be great. Now, we're not going to start 10 or one or 10 companies. Um, so what can we do to influence that, right? So we just kept rolling it back to where can we have the most influence. Mm-hmm. And at that time, we were identifying there were certain really highly engaged, ambitious, coachable, community-minded leaders in our community. And we called them the Orcapod. And we're like, how do we support and engage them? And how do we um, give them more skills? And how do we create more of them? And um, so then the concept was, yeah, that's they're the likely to be the ones who start and lead the companies that we need to make the whales. And so let's invest in that area. And so the Orcapod um, right now is, you know, it's in its infancy, but we reached out at the time to 46 leaders in the community. And that list was based on people we had seen participate in things we'd done in the past, proven that they were coachable, we knew that they were ambitious and capable, and they were community-minded. And we had 24 spots for this thing called the Leaders Discipline, which is a, a training course that I had taken, our board chair, had t- our, our past board chair had taken, uh, my COO had taken, and many others. So we had validated the quality of it. And we sent a note to those 46 people saying, we, we, we invite you, we request, we, we ask you to join us. You're, um, you're a big deal for these reasons. This is what we're trying to accomplish with the plan, mm-hmm. with the Orcapod and the 10-20-30 goal. And we went in and found the funding to pay for it. So you give us two and a half days, we'll take care of the rest. And that was in February of this year. And it went mm-hmm. amazingly well. The quali- like, it was so, we ended up with 40 because we had to set up another cohort altogether. And we've been getting them together since. And they have told us that's the most valuable thing we've ever done. And they've asked us to do more of it. They've asked us to do more of it for their teams. And they've asked us to turn it into a program. And so the future of Viatech, uh, you know, there'll be some level of the funnel that'll still be accelerator-related programming, assuming we have partners. But the bullseye now is really about this leadership and skills development part, um, because it's the highest value, most impact thing we can do. Uh, and so that's the uh, that's what we're working towards right now. And, and and so we're working on some briefing papers and descriptions because a lot of people are getting excited about the notion. We've already got a, a group in Seattle that's asked to be a cohort, and they want to come and meet our cohort. And so we see an opportunity now to build a model that could then also roll out to other parts of the world and then an annual summit of these uh, these executives, these, uh, these entrepreneurs, these leaders could meet here in Victoria with a shared language. And I think the infusion of the partnerships and the relationships and the true, you know, authentic networking as opposed to just 
you know, another lanyard and another business card, um, I think can lead to some, some real opportunity for our companies here. And at the same time, put Victoria on the map as, you know, a leadership development center. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, uh, so that's, that's what we're angling towards right now. And, uh, and, uh, all indications from our prototyping is going great. That's fantastic. Um, maybe we could end with you explaining about the, the magnet city. Magnetic cities? Yeah, magnetic cities. Sure. So um, one of the things, like, I come from Toronto, so I like to beat up on Toronto a lot. Um, and I like to contrast Toronto and Victoria a lot. Um, and maybe it just makes me rationalize the decisions I've made, but I know I'm right, so I don't feel bad about doing it. One of the things I noticed when I came to Victoria was that community engagement and community-mindedness was different. And I tried to figure out what's going on here. Why are people here more collaborative, cooperative, supportive than I've seen in other places? And obviously size is part of that. But there are other things, there's geographic features, like the fact that we have a big moat around us and it's not easy just to drive to a job somewhere else and so you're more invested here. The fact that most people here have transplanted here from somewhere else and so they've chosen, there's been something compelling about what we have mm -hmm. that has brought them here and so they therefore have a longer term view. Um, they're, they're not as nomadic in their behavior. Mm -hmm. And so what I was looking at is, so if you're, if, you're, if you're somebody who has a choice between Victoria and a job in Toronto, and the job in Toronto is going to pay twice as much. What what kind of person chooses Victoria? And what kind of person chooses Toronto? Mm -hmm. And um, and so that character set needed needed an explanation. I think that big cities, Vancouver, Toronto, San Francisco, many others, there's so much critical mass that they're just gravity. The gravity is always pulling an opportunity. It's always pulling in ambitious people, and that, and that just works for it. Mm -hmm. It also pulls in everything, and so therefore, you know, the, the, the traffic might be worse, housing might be more expensive, lifestyle mm -hmm. might not be as good, mm -hmm. you know, uh, all of those things. Whereas, well, so what's attracting people to Victoria, and, and sort of the poles of my magnet are um, quality of opportunity and quality of life. And so, if somebody is willing to trade in their daily lifestyle for more money, then they should choose a big city. But if they're gonna make you know, a different kind of character choice about the values that they have, the kind of person in life they wanna have, mm -hmm. and they pick a place like here, they're gonna have a different, they're gonna have a different character set altogether. And so, um, and the nice thing about a magnet is it only attracts things that are attracted to it, and it doesn't just pull up all the other flotsam and jetsam that gravity might. And so I just came up with that terminology to explain that places like um, Victoria, Boulder, Portland, um, Austin, uh, places in New Zealand, places in Australia, places in uh, Iceland, um, that they have that, you know, they're small, livable, amazing lifestyles, but they're big enough to have opportunity um, for people to build things. And they attract entrepreneurs and these, these, these people who are, you know, they're in some way looking for the life that they, they want for themselves. Mm -hmm. And so that, I think that there's this, this concept that I haven't fully defined the separation yet, but when I tell people what a magnetic city is and a gravity city is, they don't really ask a lot of questions. They can, it's pretty obvious to you most people. It. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so that's the concept. And I, I think Victoria is just a great example of that. And I also think that we as a magnetic city need to look at other magnetic cities and learn. Like I think Austin probably didn't grow as smartly and as deliberately as it could have over the last 15 years. And I know mm -hmm. people have left there because they miss what it was and they and, and, it, and they'll never be that again. And, and that's partly just size, but I think there's also, well, what are the lessons that we can learn along the way to, from that? I, I don't know what those exactly are yet, um, but I think it's an important dialogue to open now that, you know, I'm really tired of people saying like, you know, how do we become the next Silicon Valley? That would never be a goal of mine. I ask people like, have you ever been there? Why would, why would you aspire to be that? Like, mm -hmm. other than there's a lot of great companies and a lot of great ideas out there, mm -hmm. I really don't think that they compare in lifestyle and opportunity and happiness to what we have. And so why would we say, how do we be the next that? 
right? right? We're, we're going to be the Tectoria and they can be the Silicon Valley and then no way do they need to be relatable. We can only be the best us. That's right. Yeah. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again to Dan Gunn for being our first guest. To learn more about the Victoria tech scene, as well as any upcoming events and job opportunities, go to viatech.ca and consider becoming a member. Our website is codedincanada.com. Our logo was created by Mel McNeese at rosemarymedia.com. Our theme song was created by Mangender Benning of Limbic Media. Our audio engineer is Dave Schwab of Quadratic Sound with initial audio support from Paul Alexander of Pandora's Box Studios in Vancouver. And our special thanks to Praveen Pillay at Viatech for helping to get this podcast from idea to reality. I'm Sean Crabtree, and thanks for joining us at Coded in Canada.